Arakets Nelson is the Ruggles Professor of History and Political Science at Columbia University. A prolific scholar and one of the nation's leading social scientists, Ira's work has covered a broad range of questions in the field of American politics, political history, political theory, comparative politics, and the study of race and politics. His contributions to the discipline of political science are deep and wide. Ira has twice served on Columbia's faculty. He has also taught at the University of Chicago, served as Dean of the Graduate Faculty at the New School for Social Research, has been elected to the Presidency of the American Political Science Association, led the Social Science Research Council as its President, and most recently, Ira served as Interim Provost of Columbia University. I have invited Ira to talk about how he decided to cross the Brooklyn Bridge to attend college in Morningside Heights, how he decided to pursue the study of history in graduate school, but has centered his intellectual career in the discipline of political science. I also invited Ira to reflect on his long-standing engagement with the study of liberal democratic societies and liberalism more generally. Ira, welcome to the Dean's Table. Thank you, great to be here. Let's, let's start, I guess, in essence, in the beginning. Uh, you're a New Yorker by birth, a Brooklynite, a child of immigrants who immigrated from Eastern Europe to the U.S. after World War I. What was it like for you growing up in New York City? Um, you grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, right? I did. Um, from the age of four and a half or five, um, my uh, initial period was in northern Manhattan and Washington Heights, hmm. but that was just through nursery school. From kindergarten onward, I was in, in Brooklyn, um, as you say, in Flatbush. Right. It was a very happy childhood, but a complicated one in ways that I didn't then understand. Um, my parents, uh, as you noted, uh, were immigrants, and they were deeply, deeply grateful for the opportunity to be in the United States, especially as Jewish immigrants, um, uh, during the period of the Hitler regime and especially during the Second World War. Um, I only learned later that um, significant numbers of uh, both sides of the family uh, did not survive the war, hmm. um, uh, willfully killed. Um, and. There was, therefore, a kind of um, soft sadness, um, not directly communicated but indirectly communicated um, in the household, which um, gave me a sense of appreciation for the world we were in, but also a degree of uh, watchfulness or wariness, uh, not taking anything exactly for granted. Right, right. So, so you remained in the city to attend college at Columbia. Um, what drew you to Columbia, and what was your experience like as a student during one of the most turbulent periods in American history, the 1960s? Well, I was drawn to Columbia, I think, through a small number of extraordinary high school uh, teachers. Um, I attended a, a Jewish day school, the Yeshiva of Flatbush, in the morning, all our instruction was in Hebrew. In the afternoon, in English, uh, in secular studies. And I had extraordinary teachers both morning and afternoon. And they provoked in me and many others a zest for reading uh, ideas and difficult questions. And as I looked at... Um, university college options. Um, I only applied to three places. My, quote, safe school was Brooklyn College nearby. I applied to Cornell and to Columbia. Um, at that moment, I thought that a number of other options or potential options, Princeton and Yale, first amongst them, uh, were not going to be very hospitable to someone with my background. So I, I aimed at uh, Ivy's 
um, that I thought would be more welcoming, but also incredibly uh, interesting and potentially challenging. And that's what I found. Right, right. So um, I understand, too, that when you came to campus to interview for admissions, something happened on the way to campus. You didn't lose the shirt off your back, but you lost something else. What was that? Well, um, uh, I arrived an hour early for my interview, a bit nervous. And I used to, um, I wasn't a great athlete, but I used to pitch um, in the summers uh, in a informal league. And I asked someone, um, is there a ball field nearby? And they said, yes, in, in Morningside Park. Um, so in I went looking for the baseball field, but I was unfortunately surrounded by uh, four young people who um, uh, took my sport jacket, my outer coat, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> money from my wallet, and uh, a high school ring. Um, so I ended up arriving um, to my interview in Lowe Library, which is then where the uh, admissions office for the college was located. Mm-hmm. It's now the visitor center in Lowe Library. Um, and um, when I came in, the person who greeted me said, well, where's your coat? It's January. It's cold out. I said, well, I've been robbed. And my, my interview uh, for admission consisted of being consoled by the dean of admissions, um, Henry Coleman, who later went on to a deanship, an associate deanship in Columbia College. Um, many years later, I was a faculty speaker at a reunion weekend, and there was Hank Coleman, who might come to know when I was a faculty member. And um, I asked, I went up to him and I said, you know, Hank, something's been bothering me for, for decades. Um, uh, and I started to tell the story. And he said, that was you? I said, yes. <laughs> and he named the date. And he said, I told them, take him. He'll never come. <laughs> so yeah. that's how I got to Columbia. <laughs> so here we are. And, and I don't have a clue if I would have been admitted. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if this untoward event had not happened. <laughs> So how important was Columbia's core curriculum to your development as a student and your development later as a scholar? I think it was unevenly important. Um, uh, I had a marvelous teacher in what was then called humanities, now literary humanities, um, Angus Fletcher, who was a kind of, before his time, a kind of postmodern reader of texts. And I, I understood every third word he uttered, but he was absolutely fascinating, riveting, and I couldn't wait to get to class. My CC experience, however, and I won't name the name of the instructor, was just the opposite. On day one, the instructor arrived, and this was my first class at Columbia. Um, We used to do CC and humanities in freshman year together. Um, He said, quote, and it's an exact quote, young men, we were all men, um, you don't want to be here and I don't want to be here, so let's make the best of a bad thing. Well, this was a catastrophe. And um, a dozen of us in the room uh, decided to self-organize. And we did a reading group um, of CC for the first term. The second term, I shifted to another instructor. But uh, that was a good experience, excellent. And then Art humanities and music humanities had a profound impact on my life. Um, If I had another life to lead, I would want to be an art historian. Um, Thanks, really, to to that class. So to our listeners who are not familiar with Columbia, uh, CC means Contemporary Civilizations as a a required course for undergraduates here. So um, you just name um, uh, one or two professors. what professors at Columbia was, were the most influential? Well, I think number one on my list was the great historian Richard Hofstadter. Um, I had the, the privilege, it was an enormous privilege, of writing a senior thesis under his watch. Um, it concerned the race riots in Chicago after the First World War in 1919. These essentially were um, 
assaults on African Americans, starting at the beach and then spreading to trolley cars and neighborhoods by uh, assaults on African Americans by whites who were very unhappy with what they thought was a kind of uppity behavior of uh, post-war African American communities. And um, I, the privilege wasn't just the chance to work with one of the great scholars of his time, uh, but the fact that we met weekly for, uh, for an hour. The first hour, he would um, review what I had done on my thesis, and the second half hour, we would talk about contemporary events, including the unfolding 1960s, whether about Vietnam or civil rights uh, and the like. And it was, you know, an invaluable um, exchange for me. I should should add that the very first day I saw Professor Hofstadter, he um, he said to me, "If I teach you one lesson, uh, it is to write." Uh, without waiting to finish your research. And each week you will bring me five pages of rough draft and we'll look at them. And I did that my first, the next week. Um, he took my five, five pages and started to read them back to me. Um, and as he was reading, he took his reading glasses off and said, now still in the first paragraph, surely, Mr. Katznelson, there's a more felicitous way to make that point. Um, and I, every time I write, I hear <laughs> Professor Hofstadter telling me to be more felicitous. But the, you know, I had a, a number of incredible teachers. I would say the, the second who influenced me the most was political sociologist Juan Lintz, who moved to Yale uh, shortly after I graduated. Uh, Juan was an emigre from uh, uh, Spain, um, was deeply interested in the conditions that uh, make liberal democracy more likely. He taught comparative political sociology. It was a graduate course that I, with audacity, um, enrolled in in my third year. Um, we would meet at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning in a Fairweather Hall. Um, it was meant to stop at noon, but it didn't. It always went over, and then he would invite the class to lunch. So in effect, we had four or five hours each week with Juan Lintz uh, reviewing fundamental literature in uh, political science, political sociology, political history, um, uh, most of it 20th century literature, beginning with Max Weber, to contemporary empirical work. And I think it was that course, uh, plus the Hofstadter experience, that um, shaped my subsequent ambitions, um, including an unwillingness uh, to define myself even then fully as political scientist, political sociologist, or historian, but to find interesting questions about liberal democracy, um, both as uh, someone who cares deeply about its central principles of rule of law and rights and consent, but also someone prepared to be um, a critic um, as necessary. And these, this double whammy lesson I learned really from uh, teachers Hofstadter and Linz. Hmm. So this must have uh, influenced your decision about graduate school because you went on to study history get a doctorate in history at Cambridge University in the UK, but you also had an opportunity to work with um, the great political scientist Robert Dahl, speaking of yes. Yale, um, who established a plurist theory of democracy. Instead, you decided to go into the discipline of history. Why don't you decide to attend graduate school in history rather than political well, science? The word decide um, <laughs> implies a kind of um, willful, thoughtful, considered strategic choice. Um, it wasn't that. Um, I, I applied to Yale for graduate school and was lucky enough to get a fellowship because I wanted to work with Robert Dahl. I'd read his work as an undergraduate. Um, I didn't always agree with what he, I mean, it sounds ludicrous that a 20-year-old or 21-year-old said I would say I didn't agree, but I had questions about some of his writing 
But I knew he was a great mind and uh, an important figure. And I really desperately wanted to study with him at Yale. And I accepted admission to Yale. Then I learned um, late in the day from Dean David Truman, um, who was then dean of Columbia College, very eminent political scientist, that I had been awarded a fellowship, the Eureta Kellett Fellowship, to spend time in Oxford or Cambridge. And um, I ended up in Cambridge. My idea was that I would study for one year in history. There was no political science really to speak of in the, the American sense then in Cambridge. I would study um, history for a year, earn a second BA, and then go back to America and study with Bob Dahl. But then, I got hired as a research assistant by a wonderful historian who worked on Europe and on sovereignty named F.H. Uh, Hinsley, Harry Hinsley. And he sent me to The Hague to look at some uh, League of Nations papers. I went and he showed up one of the days I was there. We had lunch. And he said to me, Ira, I thought Americans are meant to be efficient. Um, uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, you have a BA. Why are you getting another BA? Why don't you just transfer and get a PhD here in Cambridge? I said, well, I'm going to Yale next year. He said, oh, I don't think you'll do well in an American <laughs> graduate uh, school. I said, I was taken aback. Um, I thought, I, you know, he had hired me. He must think reasonably well of me. He said, I can tell you're a child of the new left and of the 60s. You don't like authority. And if you go to graduate school at Yale, you'll have to take two to three years of coursework, as you did as an undergraduate, get grades each time and so on. Um, but if you stay at Cambridge um, and if you're admitted to do a PhD, then um, you can start your dissertation immediately while you simultaneously attend seminars. And I thought about it. I thought... I'll try that. And I did. And I don't regret it, but I deeply miss uh, having uh, studied with, with Bob Dahl, <laughs> whom I later came to know reasonably well and um, uh, had chances to share work and draft with him, and, um, but not the same as, uh, as it would have been had he been my dissertation uh, supervisor. So I, I earned a PhD in history, but I knew that I only wanted at that point, to teach in a political science department. And with the um, audacity of the ignorant, I only applied for jobs in political science. And um, I, I had three options. One of them was to come to Columbia as an assistant professor. Um, I believe to this day I owe that to my, our late colleague, Joseph Rothschild, who had been my uh, advisor as an undergraduate from freshman year on um, and I'd stayed in touch with him and explained to him why I wanted to be a political scientist, more relevant, more policy-oriented, more political, but wanted to do it um, in a manner that could draw on historical information. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So before we get to your return to Columbia, uh, what was your dissertation on? I wrote a dissertation, a comparative study of political responses to black migration South to North in America between 1900 and 1930, and West Indian migration to Britain after 1948. And the central idea was that in both cases, um, you had migrant groups moving from colonial or quasi-colonial uh, situations in which they were not, certainly were not full British or American citizens, um, they were formally, they had citizenship affiliation, um, but they were moving to, uh, to um, participatory liberal democracies in which they could vote. And my question was, how uh, were they incorporated in the polity on arrival? And so that was a study of the very uneven and limited ways in which African-Americans, in fact, were incorporated um, into both urban and national political life in both countries 
in this first period of migration, structurally equivalent but temporally um, separated. Right. And it became the basis of your first book, Black Men, White Cities, Race, Politics, and Migration in the United States and Britain. Correct. Um, what was the experience like, rather, of uh, having your former professors as your co- colleagues as you returned to Columbia? Well, I'm, I'm, there's a big smile on my face. <laughs> um, it was complicated. Um, I, I owe an enormous debt to a small number of, uh, of colleagues, alas, none still with us, Lewis Edinger in comparative politics, Harvey Mansfield Sr. in American politics, uh, Julian Franklin in political theory. I was all of 25 years old. I'd look like a member of the Red Brigades. Um, <laughs> and um, these colleagues treated me as if I belonged. Um, and that was a great boost uh, uh, to me. But remember, I majored in history. Right, um, right. I took some courses in political science, but not many. And the, the truth of the matter is I, I was um, ill-prepared uh, to be a professor of political science. Um, I majored in history at Columbia. I took three political science courses. Um, I took no political science courses as a graduate student. And there I was, a professor, assistant professor of political science. So I was running one week ahead of my students, especially my graduate students, um, when I started. But those years at Columbia, followed by a decade at the University of Chicago, um, in effect was my period as a graduate student in political science. This feeds into my next question. You left New York and you headed west to the University of Chicago. Now, Chicago's political science department at that time was among the leading departments in the nation, if not the world. Um, Its esteemed faculty included or had included leading figures in the field, um, Harold Gosnell, Sidney Verba, James Q. Wilson, Vita Scotchpole, Jane Mansbridge, and I can go on and on and on. What attracted you to Chicago? You had done research on the city, including, as you said, you had written a senior thesis at Columbia on the 1919 race riot in the city. And your first book, Black Man, White City, was also based in Chicago, a part of it. Is that what encouraged you to move to the city of Big Shoulders, your research? Uh, I think there were two um, features that uh, or realities that led me to Chicago. The first you've already articulated um, I looked at that faculty, and when I made a, I went out for a job interview visit and met um, this extraordinary group of vibrant, argumentative, sassy, interesting people. I thought, wow, you know, especially for someone who still was an amateur in the discipline, what an opportunity. Um, and second, as you said earlier, I'm a New Yorker. Um, I love New York. I was grew up mostly in Brooklyn. I went to Columbia, Manhattan. I was teaching at Columbia. And then I and um, uh, newly married, my new wife, um, we said to each other, if we don't move out of New York now, we never, ever will experience anything else. And um, Chicago, even though for a New Yorker it seems a bit like a hick town, um, <laughs> is really a great city, interesting city. So let's let's have a go at it. And um, and and uh, it was a wonderful decade mm-hmm. at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You're not the first New Yorker to refer to Chicago as that, and so I'll leave it there. But while at Chicago, you authored an important study, a book called City Trenches, Urban Politics and the Patterning of Class in the United States. The book explores the resurgence of community activism in the 60s and argues that the American working class perceives workplace politics and community politics as separate and distinct spheres of activism. From your perspective, years later, what do you think is City Trenches' lasting contributions? Well, it, it, it sounds too um, self-congratulatory to say, I think the core argument uh, was correct. Um, but let me back up half a step. Um, I got to the question of 
what might be called, many call a working class formation, um, out of uh, a study I was doing in my, I started in my last period at, in, in that moment at Columbia before I moved to Chicago, um, observing very carefully um, the politics of community, uh, the politics of conflict, the politics of ethnicity and race, and the politics of class, as it were, in northern Manhattan, in Washington Heights. Um, and much of that book is based on a community study. And what struck me, um, surprised me, was the, the implicit mutual understanding between the insurgents of the period and the authorities of the period, from the mayor on down, of what was at stake in urban political conflict. It was about services, geography, community, ethnicity, um, but it was not about work. It was not about employment. It was not about the labor issues that unions were uh, struggling about. And at this point, the unions like UAW and steelworkers and et cetera were still quite strong, much stronger than they are now um, in America. So my question was, why this shared understanding and from whence does it date? And that drew me back to pre-Civil War America in which I ended up arguing that the, it was the early franchise of um, uh, white men that um, produced a, a separate understandings um, based on the growing separation in geography between where people worked and where they lived. So that as citizens, um, where you voted where you lived in a world of ethnic solidarities um, and the like. And um, separately, you had a workplace set of relationships. And I contrasted this with Britain in this period, where the working class at this moment, 1820s, 30s, 40s, the vast majority could not vote. Certainly women couldn't vote in both countries. Um, but men, white men, um, and some African Americans in America could vote, um, and uh, but not in Britain. And therefore, in Britain, exclusion from full citizenship, where you lived, where you would have voted, was understood as a class exclusion. And that meant that class became a more holistic category than it was from early on in the United States. And later, in the late 19th century, and then again in the 1930s, when you get moments of the growth of the AFL and then the CIO, they adopted this laborist orientation as opposed to a more inclusive class orientation. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because you, you didn't do this study in Chicago as, as many of your colleagues at the University of Chicago had centered their research in the city of Chicago. You did it in the multi-ethnic neighborhoods of Washington Heights and Inwood um, in Upper Manhattan. So if you can, tell our listeners how you think your findings in city trenches might have been different had your case study been in Chicago, the city of Big Shoulders, the authority of figure um, known as um, Mayor Richard Daly Sr., um, rather than in, than in the communities based in New York, rather. That's a great question, um, and I've actually thought about it quite a lot at the at the time and since. I think if we were thinking about the white working class, um, it would have reached the same conclusion. But in Chicago, the patterning of race um, was more—it was important in New York, but more overwhelming um, in Chicago. And in city trenches, I did argue that the circumstances of uh, African Americans in New York were different than those I was describing for white residents because race was a holistic category. Um, in Chicago, um, race in local politics was more quickly, I would say, the central defining uh, quality that divided um, 
person A from person B. Um, uh, I was there when Harold Washington was elected mayor. And that was a, um, a social movement mobilization of those who'd been left out of the daily uh, years. I might say as a footnote, I had, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a privilege, but I, I met uh, Father, the senior mayor daily, a year before he died um, in City Hall uh, in Chicago. Um, and uh, it was as part of a course I was uh, helping to teach at Northwestern uh, for journalists. Um, and he asked me to stay after the journalist left when he knew I taught at the University of Chicago. And he said to me, you're not from uh, Chicago. I said, um, no, sir, I'm from New York. He said, I'm going to tell you why New York has a fiscal crisis, but not Chicago. And he pulled out the, the budget book of the city of Chicago, um, hundreds of pages in the old green and white um, computer paper, which is now gone. <laughs> Right. And uh, he turned to a page of tree cutting service, and he said, "In New York, when um, when tree cutters and trimmers go out, there are four men on the truck. In Chicago, there are two, um, and there are four in New York because in New York, unions uh, control the mayor, and in Chicago, the mayor controls the unions." <laughs> That's an interesting story. And also for our listeners, Harold Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago. So, um, Ira, you have published many books and published in several fields in the discipline, uh, urban politics, comparative politics, political theory. And so our discussion this afternoon will not hit all the greatest hits, but mostly Dean Harris's favorite books of yours, which leads me to my top favorite. When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold History of Racial Inequality in 20th Century America. What was this book about, and why did you feel the need to write it? This book um, was a policy intervention and an offshoot of a larger research program on um, the role of um, Jim Crow Southern Democrats in the Democratic Party in the 20th century, especially in the era of the 1930s and 1940s. And as I was doing that research, um, I learned some things I had not known. I'll come back to them in a second. But I also knew that there was a contemporary debate, a vibrant debate, about affirmative action. And um, I found myself asking um, whether the contemporary debate, the present-day debate, was um, complete, sufficient, uh, widespread enough? And my answer was that it was not, um, based on what I had been learning in my research. The, the typical debates about affirmative action um, had on one side, and I'm going to simplify, the argument that affirmative action is a form of compensation or reparations for a long history, going back to 1619, arguably, of, uh, uh, with regard to the black-white divide. Um, and the opponents of affirmative action were arguing that any racial preference is inherently unacceptable. What we need is colorblind um, world. And I thought, though sympathetic to the first perspective, um, it was incomplete in a number of ways. And I was um, less sympathetic to the second, but I also thought it was flawed in a certain set of ways. And those two sets of questions um, collided in the history of the 1930s and 1940s. Remember, the Democratic Party in this period was roughly 50 percent um, northern uh, labor and immigrant-oriented, social democratically-oriented uh, politicians and Southern uh, Jim Crow Democrats, um, overwhelmingly not immigrant um, and uh, devoted to reproducing white supremacy in the South. My question was, um, what difference did that make in terms of key 
public policies passed in this extraordinarily important uh, era of American uh, public policymaking. And when I looked at uh, the Wagner Act, um, which unions, or looked at the Fair Labor Standards Act, looked at the so minimum wage, maximum hours, especially when I looked at the Social Security Act, when I looked at the GI Bill, which uh, transferred more than $115 billion in its first decade to former soldiers of the Second World War, um, by the way, 10 times nearly larger than the Marshall Plan uh, for Europe in terms of economic transfers. I discovered that in every one of those cases, every single one, Jim Crow Democrats put limits on the access of not all, but many, and in some cases, the majority of black Americans to those felicitous public policies. And they did it in two ways. They did it in some cases by occupational exclusions. So if you were a farm worker or a domestic, a maid, um, you didn't get Social Security after 1935 until the 1950s. Um, you were not eligible if you worked in those industries um, for minimum wages or maximum hour legislation, just to take those two examples. And why were those jobs excluded? When the Roosevelt administration proposed the laws, they included all wage workers. But in committees dominated by Southern Democrats, um, these occupational exclusions were put in. And the other mechanism, which we see in the GI Bill, was decentralization of federal policies, decentralization of administration. So if you were a black soldier coming home to Mississippi and wanted a bank loan, which was your right uh, as a returning GI to buy a home or to start a small business, you had to go to your local bank. You wouldn't get it. Um, and of course, uh, college tuition was being paid for under the GI Bill, but there were more than 50,000 African-Americans who returned home to the South, confronted with a segregated higher education system, who found out there weren't enough places in higher education uh, because state legislatures weren't creating those places, whereas they did create those places for white uh, veterans. And hence the title of the book, uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. Right. So let's switch a bit. You, you also wrote a mammoth study on the Great Depression. Um, the book is titled Fear Itself, The New Deal and the Origins of Our Time. The book has been described as scholarship that examines the New Deal through the lens of a pervasive fear that gripped a world defined by the collapse of capitalism and the rise of competing dictatorship, as well as a fear created by the ruinous racial divisions in American society. There have been many books written on the Great Depression um, and the bundle of government programs and actions known as the New Deal that prevented total economic collapse during this, this era has been very well documented. So how is your book, Fear Itself, different in its telling of the impact of the New Deal compared to other studies about the era? I think the book, um, at least in my imagination, um, is distinctive in a, in a small number of ways, but they reinforce each other. First, I treat the full 20-year history of Democratic New Deal, Fair Deal rule of Presidents Roosevelt and Truman as a single long uh, period um, that both transformed domestic public policy but also the global role of the United States. And that's a second unusual feature of the book, which is most uh, studies of this period either separate out the 30s and the 40s, and they almost always separate out global relations from domestic politics. I'll come back to that. And third, um, and third I privileged the... Um, again, the role of Southern Democrats in the making of policy, both domestic and international, treating the American political system in this period 
as, in effect, a three-party system, Republicans, Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats. Those three aspects together, the longer time frame, the refusal to separate out domestic and international, and the focus on lawmaking and the role of the very odd constellation of uh, partisanship in Congress. It's a Congress-centered book, um, which is, of course, also a bit unusual because most of the studies of that period are presidency, Roosevelt-centered or Truman-centered. Um, those together created an analytic um, framework in which I could end up saying some things that I wanted to say or explain, and I'm happy to um, to say what I think the object of analysis was and why those um, analytical choices uh, help designate understanding of the, of the outcomes I have in mind. I'm struck by the title, Fear Itself, um, in thinking about the present crisis where we're, you know, ending hopefully a global pandemic which has intensified uh, race, racial hatreds and exacerbated economic and social inequalities. Um, can you speak to how fear itself speaks to the current crisis we're experiencing? Yes, but of course, uh, uh, as we, as you well know, the the phrase uh, fear itself appeared in Franklin Roosevelt's uh, inaugural address of March 1933. And um, I think what was so critical about his emphasis on fear, it was that this period was marked as perhaps the present is by layered and multiple sources of, uh, of fear. Um, and by fear, I mean having to confront a circumstance where the status quo or recent history is an insufficient guide. Well, in the 30s, what was so striking was the growth of regimes in Berlin, uh, in Rome, in Moscow, each of which claimed to be a better democracy than the liberal democracies because they were more direct, um, party-led, uh, single-party-led um, voices of the people, the working class in, in the Soviet Union, the German race, uh, the Italian nation. And it was the job of uh, the New Deal and the Fair Deal in part to counter that and say, no, actually, we can solve problems, big problems. We can conquer, we could conquer fear. So that's one of the, the, the threads. And the other, of course, was at home. This is still a period where lynchings are occurring. It's a, um, uh, a, a moment of uh, extraordinary um, uh, ugliness in terms of uh, racial dimension. Not that there was no racism in the North, of course there was, um, but the Southern form of expression was more virulent, more violent, and more backed by local law. Um, and the representatives of that system had incredible power in Congress. So there's a great irony that the, the answer to globally generated fear, political fear, which the dictatorships were generating, the responses um, were made, I would say, with disproportionate power by um, the representatives from what were then 17 states of the union that practiced legal racial segregation. Right, right. I want to continue a bit on that theme. Uh, you have recently written in a personal essay that one of the unifying themes of your scholarship has been the conditions that influence the state of liberalism in democratic societies. As you note, the kinds of questions that you have pursued in your body of scholarship examines, quote, under what conditions is liberalism to be more open or more closed? more egalitarian or more hierarchical, more secure or more vulnerable. Can you say more about your intellectual project on liberalism over all these years? I would say uh, uh, that from 
the very start, and I hear I go back to the inspiration of Richard Hofstadter and Juan Lintz, uh, among other teachers when I was an undergraduate, and then others uh, uh, along the way, I've come to appreciate that um, the liberal in liberal democracy as a set of conceptual ideas, rule of law, government by consent, political representation, um, et cetera, this kind of conceptual apparatus is not one any of us would want to live without. We do not want to live in a world without rule of law, without rights, without representation. Um, but liberal democracies are not just ideas. They are actually existing places that have a long history of um, non-inclusion, of exclusion, of um, creating divisions between those who do enjoy rule of law, rights, and representation, and those who do not, uh, as one set of examples. And then, of course, liberal, all liberal democracies are states in a world of states and then have to take care of national security. And doing that, um, they're always at the boundary of the illiberal as well as the liberal. Questions of secrecy, questions of surveillance, questions of loyalty. Um, which sometimes appear, as they did in the McCarthy period, in particularly brutal form. But those questions are always there. So I think we cannot do without the liberal and liberal democracy. But how in historical and actual reality we live with and through liberal democracy is an open question. And um, that's a question not in my mind, about whether we should wish to have uh, liberalism pair with democracy, but what kind of liberalism we should wish to have. And I think almost everything I've written from one angle or another has had that implicit or explicit question uh, underneath uh, the given text. How much is the United States experiencing in terms of an illiberal period in its history, or if you can call it history, because it's it's ongoing. It's 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 contemporary. Well, it's uh, what a profound question. Um, no two or three minute answer will do it justice. The United States, in some fundamental way, um, from the revolution on, was a politically liberal regime um, for those who were included. I'll answer it this way. In the great work by Alexis Tocqueville, the Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America, Volume 1, published in 1835. So the United States is not very old, uh, some, you know, six decades. Um, Tocqueville has this brilliant last chapter of Volume 1 called The Three Races in America, white, black, red, in his depiction. Uh, Native, Native Americans, African Americans, white Americans. And he begins the chapter by saying, until now, I've been writing about democracy in America, an implicitly liberal democracy. And now I'm turning to another subject, um, the subject of race, exclusion, violence. Even he predicts genocide um, with respect to Native Americans. Um, but they're not separate subjects. Um, and I think what we need to understand is the conditions under which liberal democracy, by its very character, opens up ugly prospects because it's a system of rights and representation for those who have it. And if civil society wishes to exclude or to brutalize politicians um, get pressure to do just that and to win votes on those platforms. We can see that today in, um, in, in much of our politics. Uh, why is the Mexican border um, so central to the MAGA side of the Republican Party? Um, why is resistance to um, uh, Black Lives Matter so central to the politics? It's the very structures of liberal democracy, which we would never want to be without, 
that also opens the door, as it has from the beginning of the republic, um, to patterns of limitation and exclusion. Uh, we might remember that the first uh, Immigration Act passed in American history in 1790 was for white people only, explicitly. They were the only ones who could come to America and quickly become citizens. So America has both been a liberal and illiberal democracy um, from the beginning. And the question is, um, what were the dynamics of continuity and change over time? The United States today is not identical to what it was 50 or 100 or 200 years ago in these dimensions, but we have not solved um, the dilemmas of illiberalism in the American experience. Let's briefly uh, switch gears and talk about your experience as an administrator. Um, you served as chair of the political science department at Chicago, and you eventually returned to New York as the dean of the graduate faculty at the New School for Social Research. You later returned to Columbia, and since your return, you have served as the interim executive vice president for arts and sciences, president of the Social Science Research Council, and most recently, interim provost of Columbia. You are perhaps the only person I know who has figured out how to balance high-profile administrative duties with a productive and, I might say, robust research agenda. Um, Ira, do you ever sleep? <laughs> well, notice the word interim in two of those jobs. <laughs> um, I refused in these cases to um, do more than a short-term service. But... Look, I love universities, and I mm -hmm. and I think the work we do as um, as scholars has great value potentially as democratic reason. Um, uh, so the fields in which you and I work, Fred, um, and I think as much of your work as mine, but that of many of our colleagues, um, help strengthen um, values we hold dear, and contributes to the balance between what a moment ago we were calling uh, together a liberal versus illiberal democracy. It strengthens the liberal side. Um, we practice forms of liberal knowledge, open knowledge. Uh, we debate knowledge. We have norms of reason about knowledge. We have evidence in our knowledge. Uh, we have methods in our knowledge. It's a, it's a privilege from time to time uh, to help um, administer, guide, govern, uh, what's the right word, basically work with colleagues to change probabilities within the university or within disciplines that excellent things can more likely happen. And that's the appeal of administrative job. The longest I've ever done anything like this is a five-year run uh, at the SSRC, but it was not a full-time job. It was defined as a 50-50 job. It really was more than 50-50, but it was defined as such. And I continued to teach at Columbia, and I, I published Fear itself during that period. Of um, uh, Much of it had been finished at the beginning, but um, uh, as I went, when I was an interim VP for Arts and Sciences, I did it for, for one year. Um, uh, and I was a dean for, for seven and a half years at the new school, but I was never a dean. It's a small institution mm -hmm. before one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so, um, you know, th there we are. I've tried to have uh -huh. it both ways. I feel that I've been enriched by having had these opportunities. I've met people I never would have known. Um, and I've learned something directly about institutions and organizations that would have been uh, more abstract for me um, had I not had these uh, opportunities. Right, right. So finally, I would like to end with a story and a question. So sometime in the late 80s, I first encountered the name Ira Katz Nelson. I was a research assistant to the now late Linda Faye Williams, ah. one of your former graduate students, Ira. Yes. Um, and I was a research assistant at the Washington Think Tank, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. 
I did not know then, but Linda was prepping me for graduate school, and she often told me great stories about her adventures as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. The stories usually came with a lesson or two of do's and don'ts. So once Linda mentioned her dissertation advisor, Ira Katz Nelson, whom she adored but noted that it was always hard to reach Professor Katz Nelson over the summer break because he spent his entire summers in Cambridge, England. I have to ask this question. Why your fascination with Cambridge, England, Professor Katz Nelson? What a wonderful... First of all, um, remembering uh, Linda Williams is an honor and a treat. She was an extraordinary person. And to learn that she helped guide you, dear friend, um, into the world of uh, social science um, it makes me deeply, deeply, deeply happy. Um, there's a kind of uh, long-run uh, continuity of relationships here, which is uh, deeply pleasing. Um, well, as, as already mentioned, I, uh, I did my graduate work there. Um, I also made many friends there, including in the discipline of history. Some were my teachers, others were fellow students. But I left. I didn't go back for some time, um, uh, certainly not for five or seven or eight years uh, after getting my PhD. And then I was invited back um, to give a series of lectures and uh, went and realized just how beautiful it is, but also how much um, good work I was able, I think, to achieve in the great university library there and with colleagues. That's part A. Part B is my only adult experience with um, anti-Semitism, a uh, serious experience. Our family was already spending summers in rented accommodation most summers in Cambridge, but we had moved to New York from Chicago and decided it would be great if we could only find the country place outside the city. But anything we could afford um, uh, was was not very nice, and what we liked we couldn't afford. But suddenly an opportunity arose in a housing association um, about an hour and a half north of the city in Hudson Valley. And we went, we looked at a spectacular house, it was affordable. We had to be interviewed by the housing association. And the housing association rejected our application. I, I could tell the story in a much more dramatic, long way on a five to four vote because it was thought that if um, persons of our background were admitted to this small community of 11 houses, uh, the neighborhood would tip, um, and we would only bring in other people of our religious and uh, ethnic background. And that next week, I found myself again in Cambridge, um, and friends said, well, we t I told them the story. They said, the answer is, get a house in Cambridge. You'll use it every summer. We found the house for a modest amount of money and a lovely house in a lovely place and have been using it um, for summers um, ever since, for decades now. And I get a lot of writing done there, library research, wonderful friends. London is not far, great theater, great music. Um, it's been a, counter, a, a counterpoint to New York, a very privileged one. Um, in, in my life. But um, like the original decision to do graduate work in Cambridge, it was uh, something of an accident or certainly unplanned. Um, but I don't regret a minute of it. And this year, I've been on leave following my um, stint in the provost's office. Um, so I've spent most of it uh, trying to read and write and getting back into rhythm, academic rhythm, um, uh, in the UK. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to that, um, that is uh, getting back into the rhythm um, once I step down as dean. But, but um, thanks so much, Ira. This has been a, uh, a terrific conversation. Thank you, and we can't wait to have you back full-time um, uh, as a scholar Harris in the <laughs> Department of Political Science. Thank you so much. 
Now to our listeners, this is the last episode of The Dean's Table, at least my last as Dean of Faculty in the Social Sciences. After five years as Dean, I'm going on sabbatical for a year to finish and start book projects that have been long too neglected. Um, my plans are to return to the faculty year after next and continue to teach and write. It has been a joy to interview and get to know some of my colleagues in the division more intimately. It is my hope that the podcast will continue on my return, perhaps as the podcast formerly known as The Dean's Table. Well, we'll see. Until then, all the best. The Dean's Table is produced by Eric Meyer, with production assistance by Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone, Ariana Sullivan, and John Wepler. Our researchers are Emma Flattery and Angeline Lee. Our logo design is by Jessica Lillian. Episode portraits are by Kat Willett. And our theme music is by Imperial. I'm your host, Dean Harris. <laughs>